1: Hello, and welcome to ADCES podcast, The Huddle, Conversation with the Diabetes Care Team. In each episode, we speak with guests from across the diabetes care space to bring you perspectives, issues, and updates that elevate your role, inform your practice, and ignite your passion. I'm Joanne Rinker, Senior Director of Practice, Content, and Learning at the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. If you enjoy the huddle, please take a minute to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Diabetes affects every part of the body and often results in co-conditions and complications. It's critical that diabetes care and education specialists understand the impact of comorbid conditions and how to properly screen and refer out when appropriate. ADCES recently created guidance to help you in your practice. Authors Jennifer Roselli and Christy Schumacher join us to review your role in the major co-conditions associated with diabetes. Christy and Jenny, thank you so much for joining the show. I want to start by allowing each of you just to give me a brief professional background just so the listeners can get to know you. So let's start with Christy.
2: Hi, everyone. My name is Christy Schumacher, and I'm a professor of pharmacy practice and the director of the PGY-2 Ambulatory Care Residency Program at Midwestern University College of Pharmacy, and I'm also a clinical pharmacist at Advocate Medical Group Southeast Center in Chicago, Illinois. I currently work in a patient-centered medical home to provide comprehensive medication management for a variety of internal medicine disease states, including but not limited to heart failure, diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, COPD, and
1: asthma. Thanks, Christy. Jenny, can you tell us a little bit about your professional background? I'm Jenny
0: Roselli, and I'm a clinical pharmacist and diabetes education and care specialist with SIHF Healthcare, and I'm also a clinical associate professor with Southern Illinois University Edwardsville School of Pharmacy. SIHF, it's a network of community-based health centers in Southern and Central Illinois, and I provide collaborative diabetes care with family medicine providers where I often have individual visits with patients in between their routine primary care provider visits, and sometimes we even have joint visits. My focus is on optimizing the glucose-lowering medications and medications that reduce cardiovascular risk. I also provide education, monitoring, and referrals for various diabetes-related co-conditions.
1: Well, thank you both for being here. I'm super excited today. It's been a real pleasure to work with both of you and the two other authors on this paper. And first, I would just like to ask if you want to share when this will be released and where they can find it, and then we'll jump into a little bit of the information about what's actually in the paper.
2: So the paper will be published in the May issue of ADCS yes in Practice, and it can be found at diabeteseducator.org slash co-conditions.
1: Wonderful. I can't wait to see it in print. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the paper as a whole. Why do you feel that this paper on co-conditions is so important for diabetes care and education specialists?
0: Well, first, diabetes-related comorbidities are a critical part of overall diabetes care, as co-conditions of diabetes are extremely prevalent. It's estimated that 98% of adults with type 2 diabetes have one comorbid condition, and 89% of people with diabetes have at least two comorbidities. And secondly, ADCES conducted a gap analysis in 2019, and that identified that the membership desired that co-conditions be discussed in one place or at least in one document, kind of a one-stop shop per se.
2: I think it's also important for the diabetes care and education specialist to understand co-conditions, work on preventing them, and if our individuals or persons that we're managing get them, we have to help them manage them as well. Because thinking about it, one of the seven self-care behaviors is risk reduction. So we have to think about the entire person to provide the most effective individualized care.
1: So let's talk through some of the major co-conditions that you guys address in this paper. And let's start with hypertension and heart failure. So Christy, do you want to talk a little bit about those
2: co-conditions? Of course. So what we've learned in recent years, especially from the cardiovascular outcomes trials, is that people with diabetes are at significantly increased risk of developing heart failure and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or ASCVD. So hypertension or high blood pressure is the largest factor for cardiovascular disease, and it's a strong risk factor for ASCVD, heart failure, and microvascular complications in persons with diabetes. The ADA does recommend that blood pressure be measured at every routine care visit, so it's something we should be considering all the time. And the ACC AHA recommends that we set a blood pressure target of less than 130 over 80. So when managing hypertension, we should create individualized care plans which focus on healthy lifestyle interventions, which we talk about in the paper. And then for individuals who don't have protein in their urine, we can recommend a thiazide diuretic, calcium channel blocker, or ACE or ARB And for those with chronic kidney disease or hypertension, with a urine albumin creatinine ratio greater than 300, we should be starting to think about recommending an ACE or an ARB if tolerated in those persons. So for individuals with heart failure and diabetes, the diabetes care and education specialist should be monitoring for signs and symptoms of worsening heart failure, such as shortness of breath, fatigue, difficulty breathing when lying down, and edema. So again, for persons with heart failure and diabetes, we should be focusing on healthy behaviors which we should include in all of our treatment plans, such as daily weight monitoring and reduced sodium consumption. Now, with the new cardiovascular outcomes trials as well, we need to start thinking about including SGLT2 inhibitors in the regimen for all individuals with heart failure and diabetes as first-line therapy, even possibly before metformin now, and individuals with heart failure-reduced ejection fraction and diabetes.
1: Jenny, just... Staying with this theme of some of these cardiometabolic conditions, can you also talk to us a little bit about the obesity and lipid sections?
0: So for obesity, it's recommended to at least measure body weight and then calculate the body mass index to assess the weight once a year. Now, most practices will measure body weight at almost every visit. Um, However, you know, we also need to be mindful of how body weight can be a sensitive issue for individuals, and it may be overwhelming or be triggering for some individuals as well to focus on it too often, and also thinking about realistically how often we may expect to see body weight changes depending on the overall plan for the individual patient. So no matter what the setting the diabetes care and education specialist is in, it's usually feasible to have a scale that can assess body weight during the visits But again, be mindful about the sensitive topic for people. If possible, measure the weight in a private area or where there aren't other people in the immediate area during the measurement. And when discussing weight and strategies for maintaining or achieving a healthy weight status, do so in a respectful and non-judgmental way. Have collaborative conversations with patients about what may work best for them in terms of um, lifestyle modifications. Uh, the diabetes care and education specialists can refer people with diabetes who have body weight in the overweight or obese category to medical nutrition therapy and also for diabetes self-management education and support programs. A lot of diabetes care and education specialists are involved in either both of those types of therapies or one or the other but sometimes you may be in more of a general role and can be more of the referring agent to ensure they're getting more intensive, education and support. Regardless of the diabetes care and education specialist discipline, whether it's a nurse, a pharmacist, physician, everyone should be able to provide basic education about meal planning and strategies for all people with diabetes to at least get them started or to provide some simple approaches that they can use to take in nutrition in a healthy way. So something like using the plate method, for example. Another important thing is to assess people with diabetes for disordered eating and food insecurity. So for someone who may be identified as having disordered eating, uh, they should be referred to a behavioral health specialist. For someone who may be exhibiting food insecurity, then the diabetes care and education specialist can assist with resources to accessing food or maybe getting a social worker involved in that situation. In terms of Individual diabetes care and education specialists who want to be more involved in coaching the person with diabetes who has overweight or obesity, they can you know, really have a lot of touch points with that individual. So what's recommended is 14 sessions over six months, um, working with the person with diabetes to achieve a 5% reduction in body weight over that six-month period. ADCES also has a practice paper that can be extremely useful for helping people who have obesity. It's called Addressing Obesity and Diabetes. Um, So please check that out for more information. In terms of uh, lipids, so the Diabetes Care and Education Specialist should be involved with assessing the patient's atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk. And so making sure that the patient is receiving the recommended lipid panels and utilizing that, especially for patients who are between the ages of 40 to 75, to identify what their estimated 10-year ASCVD risk would be. Uh, For those individuals who are 40 to 75 years of age, generally they should be receiving a statin and using that ASCVD risk to educate the patient about the likelihood of having a cardiovascular event, as well as how statins can help reduce that risk. So they understand it's not just for making the cholesterol panel look pretty, but it's more for the long-term risk reduction to prevent those catastrophic problems such as myocardial
1: infarction or strokes. Thanks, Jenny. Let's talk a little now about some of the microvascular complications. Christy, let's start with you and maybe talk a little bit about retinopathy, kidney disease, and the DCES role in these complications.
2: Sure. So let's start with retinopathy. We know that diabetes-related retinopathy is the leading cause of new adult blindness in the U.S., and reports indicate only approximately half of people with type 2 diabetes receive the recommended annual eye exam. So it's important we're keeping an eye out for this for all of the people with diabetes that we're managing. So in my clinic notes, I actually include in there when was the last time that they've had their annual eye exam and then when they're due for the next one, and in that way I can make sure that they always have an active referral in their chart. So the preferred screening is a dilated comprehensive eye examination, and we do need to ensure that individuals with diabetes have a referral and their their eyes are checked yearly. Sometimes our physicians do do vision screenings in the clinic, and those are helpful. However, we should educate persons with diabetes on the importance of yearly dilated eye exams and other important modifiable risk factors such as managing blood pressure, cholesterol, and glycemic therapy. In regards to kidney disease, diabetes-related kidney disease is another prevalent complication associated with diabetes. And despite being a well-known and prevalent complication, only 25% of individuals with chronic kidney disease and diabetes are even aware that they have chronic kidney disease. So this is a huge educational piece that we can play as diabetes care and education specialists. So persons with diabetes should have their urine albumin creatinine ratio and EGFR assessed yearly and if they have diabetes related kidney disease then it should be assessed twice yearly so the treatment of diabetes related kidney disease should include the optimization of blood glucose and blood pressure management as well as healthy behaviors such as a low sodium meal plan limited alcohol consumption exercise and smoking cessation sglt2 inhibitors recently have been shown to reduce the risk of diabetes related kidney disease progression so we should consider these in persons with diabetes who have a urine albumin creatinine ratio greater than 300 ACEs and ARBs are also recommended for our non-pregnant adults with hypertension and a urine albumin creatinine ratio greater than 300, and or if they have an EGFR less than 60. So it is important to remember that as kidney function changes, medication dosing recommendations and insulin requirements will also change, and they will need to be assessed more frequently. In persons with chronic kidney disease, we want to make sure that we are monitoring their blood sugars more frequently, just in case we do need to make more frequent medication adjustments. It's also important to make sure that individuals, especially those with an EGFR less than 30, are being seen by a nephrologist. So we've got some important things to follow up on there. We need to make sure that we're checking their kidney function at least yearly, if not twice yearly, if they have a diagnosis, of DKD, and making sure if their EGFR is less than 30, that we're making sure they have an appropriate referral to be seen by a nephrologist.
1: Thanks, Christy. Jenny, can you tell us a little bit about neuropathy as well as skin, hearing, which I know is often an overlooked co-condition?
0: So starting with the peripheral neuropathy, which is kind of what comes to people's minds first, I think, when you're talking about diabetes-related neuropathy. And as far as screenings go, I think one thing that diabetes care and education specialist can do is to ensure that the patients are receiving the annual foot exams. Uh, So for adults and children who are over the age of 10 uh, with type 1 diabetes, it's recommended to start the annual foot exams five years after diagnosis. And individuals who have type 2 diabetes, that foot exam should be started at the point of diagnosis. And of course, it should be annual. And one thing we also can do is foot inspections for individuals who are identified as having foot abnormalities or foot-related complications or complaints. So sometimes if a patient is describing a concern uh, in their lower extremities, then I'll have them take off their shoes and socks and observe what's going on and then identify if I need to get another provider involved for assessment of acute problems Or if it looks more like some chronic concerns that they would need a podiatrist referral for, then uh, working with their primary care provider to ensure that that referral is placed. Uh, Sometimes we just need to remind the patient if they are already established with a foot care specialist to follow through with those annual foot exams or if they're supposed to be seen more often, reminding them of that as well. Another thing is to identify symptoms of neuropathy that the patients may be experiencing the traditional pinprick feelings, numbness, tingling pain. For people who are having numbness, then we want to make sure that they are wearing proper shoe gear, especially if they do have uh, more severe consequences of peripheral neuropathy or deformities in their lower extremity. Uh, because that can really be a breeding ground for ulcer formation, skin infections, that sort of thing. Educating the patient about proper self-care of their feet is also something diabetes care education specialists should be involved with in providing on a regular basis to individuals with diabetes. We can also ensure that patients are receiving uh, medications if they are experiencing quite a lot of pain due to uh, neuropathy. And then following up with if it's being effective for them, if they're experiencing any unwanted adverse events from those medications, then we can work with their prescribers on those kinds of issues. As Joanne had mentioned, that there are several other types of neuropathies or manifestations of neuropathies that people with diabetes may experience. Some things that often aren't thought about as readily as peripheral neuropathy include uh, hearing. And hearing loss is associated with diabetes, and it is recommended that individuals with diabetes undergo annual hearing screenings to identify any type of hearing loss early. It could be something that patients don't often bring up to their providers. They sometimes will think that that's just something that happens with older age, and perhaps it's happening sooner than it should, or it is something that we can intervene with because it can be extremely Stressful for the patients to not be able to hear what people around them are saying or what's going on around them. Uh, It can be a quality of life issue. So that is definitely something to keep in mind.
1: And then, Jenny, what about oral health and how the DCES can have the conversations about oral health?
0: Right. Dental health and diabetes are related. And so there can be a number of oral manifestations uh, that patients who have diabetes may experience, such as having dental cavities, infections, dry mouth, taste disturbances, and periodontal disease. And what we want to recommend for the person with diabetes is that they are maintaining good oral health, that they are also following up with their dental provider, at least annually for the periodontal disease screenings. It's also important for the individual to have regular teeth brushing. And so that should be part of Kind of a checklist that we provide the individual with diabetes in terms of their self-care. So recommend that they are brushing and flossing uh, twice a day ideally. It would also be ideal that they're seeing their dental provider at least every six months, but at a minimum, again, annually is
2: recommended.
1: Thanks, Jenny. And then Christy, can you talk to us a little bit about behavioral health and the role of the diabetes care and education specialist?
2: So behavioral health is really important and something that always needs to be in the back of our mind. Because one in four persons with diabetes experiences depression, and a third of all adults with type 2 diabetes are affected by diabetes distress. So the behavioral demands of diabetes self-management, such as taking the medications, checking blood sugars, watching their food intake and eating patterns, as well as physical activity and how it influences blood glucose readings, and the potential for actual disease progression, those are directly associated with reports of diabetes distress in our population. The diabetes care and education specialist should assess for signs and symptoms of diabetes distress, such as depression, anxiety, eating disorders, cognitive abilities related to the management, using validated tools at the initial visit and then periodically thereafter. So really kind of taking a look at the person with diabetes and assessing, you know, what's their mental health look like? Do they have any underlying depression, anxiety? And if they do have any signs and symptoms of any behavioral health disorders, we should be making sure that we're referring them to a behavioral health specialist, especially one familiar with diabetes management. So this should occur at our initial visit, as well as visits thereafter, just ensuring that our individuals or patients that we're managing are getting the care that they need.
1: Thank you so much. And then how would you recommend that diabetes care and education specialists implement screenings for conditions in their practice?
0: Sure. So i Typically start by reviewing the individual's existing diabetes-related co-conditions and the severity of those conditions, asking about the presence of symptoms of common co-conditions or honing in on concerns that the person may discuss with you, and it may be representative of a diabetes-related complication. So abnormal findings or symptoms of something that is undiagnosed or possibly a worsening co-condition should prompt a prioritized referral to the appropriate specialist or perhaps having a screening done in your setting if that's possible depending on the scenario. So some examples of this are like vision changes. uh, Then that should prompt a pretty quick referral for the person to see their eye care specialist. If the person experiences wounds, Uh, Then you want to get another provider involved, or perhaps you need to refer that individual to urgent care or the emergency room, depending on how severe of a situation we're talking about. Finding out if they're having bleeding gums when they do brush their teeth, then that should prompt them to follow up with their dental provider as well. So be observant during the interactions that you have with people who have diabetes notice things uh, that may need to prompt further conversation, such as their walking gait is abnormal, or they're having a difficult time hearing you when you're speaking to them or providing education. So being familiar with those referral processes and the insurance requirements is also something that the diabetes care and education specialist should do, and that can help them be a facilitator of those various referrals that are necessary. The majority of the individuals with diabetes I work with have Medicaid, and so I know that an official referral is not needed for a comprehensive eye exam, but it's only going to be covered by the eye care provider if that eye care provider knows that that individual has diabetes and then is able to document that when they do the exam. So that can help prevent an unnecessary official referral from being placed, so we're not clogging up that within my healthcare setting. Uh, It can streamline the individual with diabetes going to see an eye care provider, but I am providing them with those resources or the local eye care providers that I know would take their insurance coverage.
2: So I think one of the things we also have to consider is that we have to pace out the referral process, especially if this is a new patient to our practice. Maybe they've never seen a specialist before. It's something we have to think about. We talked today about a lot of different co-conditions that influence individuals with diabetes, And I think, you know, we've talked about all the different referrals and making sure they see a nephrologist, possibly if they have chronic kidney disease, having yearly eye exams, going to the dentist, going to have their feet checked potentially by a podiatrist. There's a variety of different referrals that we could provide individuals with diabetes, especially the first time we meet them, we're telling them all these different things that they need to have done to either manage co-conditions or prevent co-conditions So I think an important thing that diabetes care and education specialists have to think about is we really need to pace out the referral process because we don't want to overwhelm and contribute to diabetes distress further. So we've had individuals in our clinic come in and they have diabetes. And I've seen our physicians give them five, six, seven referrals at a time. Here, you need to go see this specialist, this specialist, this specialist. So And then I'll go in and meet the patient and they'll straight up ask me, which one of these should I really do? Because I can't afford the copay of seven different specialists. So they really, sometimes we need to think about pacing out the referral process, prioritizing them, which ones are more important um, based on the different conditions and really help our patients manage that process as well, just so we don't overwhelm them causing potentially even leading to diabetes distress.
0: Yeah, and I think another thing that diabetes care and education specialists can do is also provide those loving nudges to the individual with diabetes. So sometimes we have to provide the information multiple times and give them reminders because you know, life happens to everyone and it may not be a priority at the last visit or after the last visit for that person to follow up on the information you gave them but still revisiting that and, you know, eventually it will be the right time for them to follow through on that.
1: Well, thank you both so much. I really appreciate that you took the time today to really review the importance of these co-conditions in diabetes. You know, we know for sure that the diabetes care and education specialist really works with the whole person and having these conversations about risk reduction of these, all of these complications that you talked about today and being able to do that can really impact the quality of life of the person with diabetes. I wanted to point out that we do have these new resources available at diabeteseducator.org/co-conditions and what you can find there is not only the paper but also the resources and one of those is a co-conditions checklist. So I just encourage everyone to check that out and Um, Like I mentioned, I really appreciate your time today, Christy and Jenny. So thanks so much.
2: Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us.
1: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. Today, we heard from Jennifer Roselli and Christy Schumacher on the importance of the diabetes care and education specialist in co-condition management and screening. We learned that recognizing and screening for a variety of comorbid conditions can reduce risks and improve outcomes. To access new guidance from ADCES on co-conditions, visit diabeteseducator.org co-conditions. Membership at ADCES gives you access to the education, networking, and resources to improve your practice and optimize outcomes for your clients. Find out what ADCES can do for you at diabeteseducator.org join. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. This podcast does not provide medical or professional advice and is not a substitute for consultation with a healthcare professional. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.